so last week when I was uh, finishing, I, I, to summarize what I said, I said that Jesus wasn't simply a theologian, that he was an activist, and he fought against the systemic oppression within his Jewish culture that afflicted the underprivileged and the outsiders. Uh, Jesus stood with the poor, he stood with the outcast, and he raised the status of women and children and because uh, they were socially unseen, but Jesus uh, saw them and interacted with them. He consistently refused to racially denigrate the Romans and the Samaritans. And the good news of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, was not simply a salvation message. It was a radical new social order uh, where justice meant restoration and nobody was treated as subhuman. And he, uh, because of this, he wasn't actually killed because of his orthodoxy, which is the right beliefs that he had. He was killed for his orthopraxy, the way that he lived out those right beliefs. See, he was killed because he was a threat to institutional powers that did not want social transformation. So I want to talk about that a little bit more today. Uh, I'm just going to lift this camera up a tiny little bit so I don't have to look down into it. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that today. I'm going to pick up in, uh, in the book of Mark. I actually prepared to preach out of the book of Luke because that's just like my go-to. I don't... I, I don't normally even think about it when I think Gospels. Uh, and I got like nine-tenths of the way through preparing this message and then realized that the, um, the Mark version of, of this particular set of scriptures is much more helpful. So we are, we are in the book of Mark, which I think, <laughs> like I've been doing this for 15, 20 years. I don't know how many times I've preached from Mark, but I could probably count it on one hand. I think I'm a bad pastor. Uh, so I hope you are ready for that. Very exciting news to preach from Mark. So from Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 21, it says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus uh, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So we have um, we have these two stories that are sandwiched together here, and they're a little bit weird, to be honest. Uh, like, Jesus sees a fig tree, and it doesn't have any fruit, so he curses it, and then later on we hear that it's died. So we have this weird fig tree cursing story and this story where Jesus turns the tables over. And I think most people have heard that Jesus gets cranky and turns the table over. Not too many people have heard that Jesus was cranky, uh, what is it, hangry? He was uh, hungry and angry, and he cursed the uh, fig tree. Uh, so it, I, I want to talk about what's going on here with these weird little kind of story of the fig tree. Now, Mark says that the figs are out of season. That's only 
kind of true. So the fig trees would grow uh, regular figs, uh, but they also would grow earlier um, uh, these edible buds. So if you were in Palestine, you'd know that these edible buds uh, grow around March uh, before growing big leaves in April. And then the presence of the buds were kind of an indication that the tree would be fruitful uh, come May or June. So you'd have the buds, then the leaves, and the buds would fall off and the fruit would grow. But those buds were in fact edible. So when Jesus saw this tree and from a distance and he could see that it had these green lush leaves on it, it was reasonable for him to assume that there would also be these buds that they could uh, have a quick snack on as they were on their way into Jerusalem. And... Uh, uh, the buds, though, the lack of buds there was an indication that the, the fig tree would, would end up being barren. You see, and this, this odd little story that jumps in here is actually a prophetic symbolism of sorts, whereas Israel, the, the nation of Israel and the temple especially, uh, from a distance had leaves. It looked fruitful. But when you got close up, you could see that the righteousness of the temple and the leadership was actually false and that it was barren indeed. Uh, so the religious system was barren and corrupt. So this interaction with the fig tree is a foreshadowing of Jesus' accusations against the temple and the, and what is about to happen when he turns the the the, um, the tables over of the money changers and the and the people selling livestock in the temple. So in in Luke, because I do like, I'm just going to jump in here quick and give you the Luke account. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is in Luke 19:41 to 44. He said, uh, if you, even you, this is, so he's looking over Jerusalem and he's weeping. If you, even you had known on this day, uh, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So we have these kind of mashed together uh, versions. We have all these different bits of pieces of the story in the different gospels. So we know that Jesus had this incident with a fig tree and we know from Luke that Jesus wept over the city. He's standing on the Mount of Olives and I've, I've showed you guys maps of the, of the area of Jerusalem quite often, but the Mount of Olives is to the immediate east of the temple and it's a, t a few hundred meters, like it's a walking distance. Like I mean, the Mount of Olives is crazy steep, but it is a walking thing. So from the Mount of Olives, you literally look over the walls of Jerusalem into the Temple Mount and where the temple was standing. It would be this, like now there's a, there's a mosque there, but in the, the time of Jesus, the uh, Solomon, uh, not Solomon's temple, Herod's temple would have been there and it would have been amazing coming over this over the Mount of Olives and seeing that and then in between the Mount of Olives and and there is the Garden of Gethsemane so you would come through the Garden of Gethsemane and then into the city so Jesus is standing there just as it's the the road's about to fork off to go down into the to the Temple Mount and he knows what's coming he knows that this is when he comes into Jerusalem and it starts the the, the events that will lead to his death he knew that his actions were going to incite the religious establishment to action and that they would begin the, the steps to his crucifixion. And he knew what he was doing. This was not an accident. Jesus was getting ready to wage a really significant protest. This was the time to protest. Not because he was seething with rage, though. It was because he was heartbroken. He was filled with grief and compassion and he longed to gather Israel up like a mother gathers, gathers her hens, like her chicks, uh, a mother gathers her chicks under her wings, but they were not willing. 
Now, as Jesus has come over this Mount of Olives and he's looking down at the temple, the Mount of Olives uh, at the time of Jesus in this first century, there would have been four different markets that he went through that were selling uh, the, the goods that you could use for sacrifice in the temple. So the pilgrims would come through the Mount of Olives and there was a uh, the Sanhedrin uh, coordinated a series of markets there on the Mount of Olives and you could buy doves and animals and wine and oil and salt for the rituals that would be undertaken in the temple. Uh, but these markets were not managed by the high priest or by the, the priests in the temple. It was managed by the Sanhedrin. But Jesus didn't protest there. When he was going through that area, they were selling stuff, no protest at all. But when he went into the temple, uh, into the, the, the courtyard around the temple, something was different about this, something that uniquely disgusted Jesus that he wanted to speak out against and protest against. See, the, the temple court, so you had the, the temple itself is kind of this big square area in the middle of the top of this plateau. Uh, and then outside that, you would have the temple court. So they, and they were called, uh, well, there was a, woman, a women's court and a bunch of other things. But then the most broadest set of courts was called the court of the Gentiles. So that was as far as a Gentile could go uh, who hadn't become a full prosel, uh, proselyte of, of the Jewish religion and been circumcised and all that. So they, would, they were allowed into this outer court. So it was still inside the walls of the Temple Mount and, and they were allowed inside that area. You see, but historians um, have pointed out now that Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, he decided that he didn't like the, the Sanhedrin managing the markets on the, temp, uh, on the Mount of Olives. He wanted a cut of the action. So he set up markets inside this court of the Gentiles, in this area uh, immediately outside um, the, the Temple Mount, but also immediately inside the Temple Mount, which was totally against the rules. Uh, as far as um, Jesus was concerned, uh, certainly, but Caiaphas obviously managed to justify it. So the money changes were set up there as well. So once a year, the, uh, the Jewish people, any man over the age of 20, had to pay a tax to the temple that was then given to Rome. Uh, so the temple tax, as was known, it had to be paid in shekels. It couldn't be paid in any of the Roman coins or the Greek coins or anything. It had to be paid in shekels because they didn't have the image of Caesar or something on the coin itself. So you would go to the temple uh, at a specific time of year. Um, and so this is kind of, it dates the events for us. And you would exchange your impure currency for the shekels. And then you would get ripped off on the exchange, just like at an airport when you're getting your money changed when you're going overseas. Exactly like that. And, and they were meant to, they were allowed to charge a small fee, which was meant to cover like, because with old, like ancient coins, it was actually the metal that was kind of valued the coin. So they, the, but the metal would wear out over time. So anytime they were exchanged at this point, a small fee was charged to cover the fact that the coins kept getting smaller and smaller. Anyway, that's irrelevant. But the small fee was uh, getting jacked up a little bit, let's say. There was a bit of corruption going on there. So when they exchanged, they'd get ripped off. Uh, and then when they'd go in, there was the money changes and then also where, where you would buy doves, which is uh, for the poor and for women as well. That was the, the animal of choice uh, for, for sacrifice. Uh, but also other animals like a calf or a lamb or something, you would, you would exchange your animal because you'd turn up, uh, let's say you're a shepherd uh, from a long way away, you wouldn't want to have to bring a herd with you um, or something. You could just, you know, walk into the city and buy an animal or 
If you brought your own animal, and this is where the corruption kind of kicked in a little bit more, you would bring your own animal, uh, and and the and the high priest or the, the priests at the temple would say, "Nah, your animal's not good enough. Uh, it's not pure enough. You need a certified animal if you want to be able to sacrifice." So you'd have to sell your animal to them, buy the certified animal, and then go sacrifice it. But then what would happen is. That bloke could just turn around and he'd sell the animal you just sold him to the next bloke. It was a completely corrupt system. So Jesus turns up and there's the money changes and there's the, uh, the, all of the other people there. And because of the, the greed of Caiaphas, uh, the court of the Gentiles, which was meant to be an area consecrated for worship for the Gentiles uh, coming to Yahweh, instead it had become a bazaar of traders and animals and market stalls. And also uh, in, the, um, in the Mark account, it says a convenient shortcut for people who were trying to get through the city, uh, which was actually against the law. Uh, like it, it talks about that somewhere else uh, in the scripture. So you weren't allowed to do that. Uh, and so Jesus turns up and he's, he's heartbroken. He's just wept over the city. And he says, I, I want my people to understand what they're doing. Uh, and, and I grieve for them. And he turns up and he turns the tables over. And he, and, he, and he makes a whip, if you, if you read elsewhere. And the whip isn't to hurt people. It's not an act of violence. The whip is to drive the cattle out, the stock out, the, the animals out of the temple, uh, out of the temple mount, because they shouldn't be there. It's meant to be a house of prayer, but they have turned it into a, a den of thieves and robbers. So Jesus has this righteous uh, grief that uh, is outpouring over the behavior and treatment of, of the, um, this sanctified area. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, Jesus went to the temple to protest. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment outburst. It was a calculated demonstration motivated by grief and love. It was time to start a revolution. He knew exactly what he was doing. And they arrived again in Jerusalem. This is in, in Mark eleven twenty seven and onwards. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, this is right after this. This is like the next little section of scripture. They arrived again in Jerusalem. So he's gone home after this little episode of turning the tables over. Calm down, come back uh, the next day or the day after. And while he was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. And this is what they said. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Tell me. And they discussed it among themselves uh, and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, no, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I don't know if you've ever had someone ask you what your credentials are. Uh, 
Uh, like I, I suspect that in my particular line of work, that's more common. Uh, often, especially when I was younger, people would be like, who ordained you? Like, how did you, what qualification do you have? Do you have a degree? Like, where did you learn? What denomination are you a part of? Who is it that says that you're allowed to do the things that you were doing? Uh, if you were out a doctor, or uh, I think Steve's in the audience here, he added reverend to all my bank accounts, um, which he thought was very funny. Um, uh, and to add extra authority, he changed the name of my savings account to the Dark Knight, uh, which it still is. Uh, so, And that gives me great authority with teenagers. Not so helpful when I'm trying to cash a check at the bank, though. Uh, you see, but we use these titles and we add little acronyms after our name and all this because we want to build our reputation so that people will respect us. Because people uh, will ask you, who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? So when they ask Jesus that, uh, it, it's kind of a recognition that he is speaking with authority. They're, they're worried because what he's saying is holding true, certainly in the hearts of the people. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 32, it says this really simple things. It says, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. When Jesus spoke, people listened. When Jesus spoke, it, it commanded people's attention. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders they were used to being the ones who had authority. So they didn't like it at all when someone else was being given authority. They didn't like it at all when people recognized Jesus' authorities. You see, these leaders, they did not actually want the Messiah to turn up. They didn't want anything to change. The system worked great for them. While the rest of Israel was eagerly awaiting and desiring the arrival of the Messiah, the Jewish establishment was trying to maintain the status quo and their control over the people. The people who benefit from unjust systems use their authority to ensure that nothing changes. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen how abusive people or authoritarian systems respond to those who challenge their authority. Uh, but these are the kind of statements and questions get thrown around as soon as you, and I've experienced this myself, even in the systems that I'm a part of, uh, people will say, who do you think you are? You're rebellious. You're a troublemaker. Stop being so divisive. You just need to submit. Uh, a bunch of, some of the ladies in the audience, ever heard that one? From... Uh, from your venerable pastor or your husband? Uh, not from me. Uh, I hope not. You need to submit. This is how things have always been done. I don't know what you're complaining about. That's never happened to me before. Uh, they deserved it. Stop being so disloyal. Uh, why don't you just get in line with everybody else? You see, because people who are in abusive authoritarian positions don't want change. And anyone that speaks of change or looks like change or challenges their authority needs to be gaslighted and diminished and taken down a peg because we don't want anyone else to catch the disease of revolution that is inside of them. So when Jesus starts to challenge the authority of their system, they started to pay attention. It wasn't when he was just some wandering weirdo on a hill. That didn't bother them so much, but it really bothered them when he started to overturn their corruption and, they, and, and started to overturn their income stream and started to overturn in their very own home turf the authority that they believed they had. So they started to plot to kill him. So they asked Jesus about John's baptism. Um, so let's have a look at that. Let's, uh, oh sorry, John, uh, Jesus asked them about John's baptism. Let's have a look at what John was preaching. So uh, this is in Luke chapter 3. Uh, verse 16, 
It says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, And in John 1.29, this is even more bold. It just says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, if the Jewish leaders recognized John the Baptist as a prophet, uh, they would have no choice but to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, which is a problem. Uh, But if they say that John the Baptist is not a prophet, uh, then they're going to get in trouble because everyone else thinks that he is. So they just say, oh, we don't know. We We don't know. You see, in the kingdom of the world, people abuse authority to serve themselves. It's just, it's, 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 it's in the brokenness of human nature is that they abuse authority to serve themselves. In the Garden of Eden, there was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when humanity ate from that tree, they started to decide what was good and what was evil for themselves instead of how God deemed what was good and what was evil for all of creation. And when we choose what is good for ourselves, it's often not good for someone else. So that is the corruption that exists since the very, very beginning. So people of the world abuse their authority to serve themselves. And in in the kingdom of the world, the people who have the most power and the most money and the most influence, they want to protect the status quo because they are the ones who are winning at this particular version of life. They want to ensure that things stay the same because it's working for them. See, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this, this interaction... Uh, where Jesus gets asked, whose authority are you talking about? It starts like this. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. This is the problem. Jesus was proclaiming good news. He is, again, he's already gone and turned the tables over and now he's back to protest some more. Uh, and he's, he's right there and he's saying, I have good news for you because the good news you're getting here ain't that good. The good news that you're getting here says that you can't get in unless you buy special coins and buy special animals. Uh, and if, hell, if you're an uh, Ethiopian eunuch, you can't even get that far because you're impure. Let's put up a gate around the whole thing that says that if you are somehow different to us, you don't belong, you don't fit, you are not welcome. And Jesus says, I have got good news for you. I'm going to challenge the authority that they seem to think they have and offer you something which is better and which is different. And if we want to be like Jesus, we must proclaim, we must protest with good news, even if it doesn't sound like good news to those who have power. We need to proclaim good news to the poor. For those who are in poverty, for those who are unseen, for for those who are refugees and victims of war and greed, for those who are only just making ends meet, those who don't have the the resources to be able to, to flourish in life, we need to speak out on behalf of those people. The people who've been abandoned by their leaders and their governments, the church has a responsibility to bring good news. We need to preach good news for freedom for the prisoners. For those who are in literal change and those who have been economically enslaved. For those who are in bondage physically and mentally and emotionally. I read in the news this week that the only children in custody in this country right now are Aboriginal children. So again, we have this systemic process that allows for injustice to be done both against children but also against our First Nations peoples. Good news is freedom for prisoners. See, these are not people who have done wrong. These are people who we just lock up because we don't want to share with them. 
It's a disgrace and it's disgusting. And we need to protest that and say there is good news for those who are prisoners. We need to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. For those who live in daily disadvantage or infirmity, for those who can't access the resources to improve their lives, we need to set oppressed people free. We need to proclaim good news to the oppressed. For those who uh, for generations have been held under the boot of tyranny and subjugation and for those whose blood cries out for justice and for those who are oppressed uh, by the systems that are in place all, all through our society by powerful people to control those who are below them. We need to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, a time of jubilee, of freedom, of new beginnings, of uh, a time of plenty where there is enough for everyone, enough uh, of everything that we need. But if we just would proclaim a jubilee, a time of reconciliation, we must stand against the corrupt systems and institutional powers that promise freedom, but really only bring destruction. That's what the gospel of, of good news is. We must not shirk in the face of perverse authorities that want to maintain the status quo. Especially in a country like ours, which is just a democracy, we can literally stand against it. We can say we will not have the oppression of people under our watch any longer. We must not uh, be drawn into, though, this is the trick. This is the difference between uh, protesting uh, like Jesus and protesting like someone else, is we can't be drawn into anger and violence. Rather, we need to act out of grief for the oppressed and, and, and love for the oppressed and compassion for those who are complicit and have hope in the knowledge that our Saviour is coming to bring justice and to make all things right. That's the kind of good news that I want to proclaim, that I want to protest about. There is one coming who makes all wrong things right. There is one coming who sets the oppressed free. There is one coming who takes all of the things, all the people have been ripped off and he settles the accounts. It's good news and it's good news that upsets the people who have all the power and all the money and all the agency. It upsets them. But it's the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you proclaimed a new kingdom that was just so radically different that it upset the apple cart, that it turned over the table so powerfully that they just had to come after you. And I pray that we would have the courage to stand and protest with such vehemence and such love and such compassion, motivated by a grief in our heart to draw everyone in to reconciliation and healing and comforting. But that we would stand strongly in that protest and say, no. We have good news. We will represent a different kingdom. So Heavenly Father, give us a, a holy discontent that we would preach your kingdom despite consequence. In Jesus' name, amen.